Well, we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Uh, please open your copy of God's Word and follow along. You can um, grab a, a Bible uh, in front of you off the pews if, if you do not have one. We'll be reading verse 22 to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Guide your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What you've just heard read this morning is not the words of men, but it is the very words of God. May we receive it as such. Well, as it pertains to understanding the relationship between law and gospel, there have historically been several misunderstandings. On one end of the spectrum is that of legalism. And legalism says that we are right with God by our obedience to the law. Now, practically, this tendency can sneak in as one's joy, peace, and assurance will often depend on their performance rather than in Christ's perfect work. Well, on the other end of the spectrum is that of antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti, against, and nomos, law, to be anti-law, or to say that there is no law. And it argues that because we are saved by grace alone, it matters not how we live. And practically, this may look like excusing ongoing sin while trumpeting the mantra of no longer being under law, but under grace. And although each of these views have significant issues, they nonetheless contain elements of truth. For it is true that obedience is necessary, and it is equally true that we are saved solely by the grace of God. However, what these views fail to consider is the distinction between the cause and the purpose of salvation, between the reason for and the result of salvation. Now, the cause of and the reason for our salvation is solely the mercy and grace of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we all know it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Yet the purpose of and the result of salvation is that of obedience and good works. As Paul continues in chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, we are not saved by our obedience, but we are saved for obedience. In the 22nd chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we read of a lawyer coming to Jesus so that he might test him and trip him up. And in seeking to test him, the lawyer asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And to that, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is arguing here that the entirety of God's law is defined by love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And as the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What John is highlighting here is that love for God is most clearly seen and demonstrated by a love for those whom God has redeemed. After all, it is by our love for one another that Jesus says that we will display to the world that we are truly his disciples. For brotherly love is both a purpose of and a natural result of salvation. So as we look at our text this morning, we will consider two ways in which we can better love one another. These will help us cultivate brotherly affections for our church family. So the first of these two ways that we can better love our church family is by believing gospel truth. Well, this year marks the 100th anniversary of J. Gresham Machen's classic work called Christianity and Liberalism. And in that work, he, he seeks to highlight the vast chasm that existed between historic Orthodox Christianity and that of the modern liberal Christianity of his day. He demonstrated that liberalism was not merely a different kind or form of Christianity, but a different religion altogether. For most liberals taught universalism, the idea that all men will be saved no matter which path they follow. They taught that God is not known, but experienced. He is not understood with the mind, but he is felt subjectively. They rejected scripture as God's self-revelation and therefore rejected inspiration and inerrancy. They rejected Christ's deity, his virgin birth, his substitutionary death, as well as his bodily resurrection from the dead. The rejection of sin and judgment distorted salvation from being salvation from sin's guilt and power to that of becoming the best version of yourself. And finally, they twisted the mission of the church from being one of gospel proclamation to being that of social transformation by means of leftist liberal political activism. Machen concluded by saying these words, what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. So what then did the liberals of Machen's day appeal to if not the truths revealed in God's word? What they appealed to were aspects of the Christian faith that remained culturally relevant to their time. They saw Jesus not as the Son of God, but as a sage. They saw him not as the Messiah, but as a moral teacher. Simply put, they wanted to retain some of the aspects and elements of the Christian moral teaching while divorcing it from the doctrinal realities derived from Scripture. These ideas did not begin in the early 1900s 
but were the byproduct of ideas divorcing, or but were the byproduct of ideas proposed nearly two centuries earlier in the Enlightenment. And in response to such ideas, many professing the name of Christ sought to conform to the cultural climate around them. Such tendencies are alive and well today, as our cultural winds have blown further and further from biblical truth. So many professing the name of Christ have blown right along with it. In the name of tolerance and relevance, many have sought to water down the Christian faith. No longer is the gospel a message about the triune God redeeming sinful humanity unto himself. Instead, in many churches, the gospel today is about self-help and self-esteem. The tendency today is the same as it was in Machen's day to change Christianity in hopes of saving Christianity. Yet, such tendencies are not so with the Apostle Peter. As Peter commands his readers to love one another, he first reminds them of how God saved them through the gospel. He says, look with me at verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, is Peter really saying that we are the ones who actively purify ourselves? Well, yes, it clearly says that. Peter clearly says that we are active participants rather than passive recipients in our soul's purification. And yet elsewhere, the New Testament speaks of purification as being the active work of God and man as the passive beneficiary. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after Paul's just go on, gone on to list a, a number of vices and of sins, he says to the Corinthians in, in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this text, God is the actor. He is the one who washed, who sanctified, who justified, because Paul says it's by the Spirit of our God. And similarly, in Titus chapter 3, Paul says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but in accordance with his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. So how then should we understand what, what Peter is saying here? Well, as Peter reminds us and reminds his readers of their purification, he also reminds them of what caused their purification, namely their obedience to the truth. That is, it was by their obedience to the truth that they were cleansed and purified. If you look with me in the immediate context in in verse 23, Peter's going to talk about how they have been born again, and this new birth has occurred through the living and abiding Word of God. And he'll later define that Word in verse 25 as the good news that was preached to them. So the truth that is in reference here, that he says they're purified by their obedience to the truth, is, is the gospel. And obedience here is in reference to their submission to and surrender to the gospel. This phrase, obedience to the word or obedience to the truth, is used multiple times by Peter in 1 Peter. He'll do it in chapter 2, chapter 3, 
and chapter 4. Look with me to uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Peter here is highlighting Christ as the cornerstone. And he talks about two groups of people and how they respond to Christ as the cornerstone. There are those who believe and trust in Christ as the cornerstone, and they're honored. And there are those who reject and therefore stumble over Christ as the cornerstone. He says in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here in verse 8, disobedience to the word is paralleled with they do not, they do not believe. And look with me to chapter 3, verse 1. As Peter is exhorting the wives to be in submission to their own husbands, he says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, to, to speak of these husbands as those who are disobedient to the word, is speaking in reference that they are unconverted. They are not believers. They're not believing husbands. And these believing wives are still to live in, in submission to them and to honor them and to respect them. And God might use that to lead them to faith and repentance. Finally, we see this same phrase used in chapter 4, verse 17. It's perhaps the most explicit reference, which is why I'm arguing that the truth is in reference to the gospel. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what is in reference here, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 22, is the issue of conversion. For unlike regeneration, which we'll talk about as we get to verse 23, which is the work of God alone, conversion is active in nature. The sinner is called to, and even commanded to, repent and believe in the gospel. For the gospel is not a suggestion, but it is a command. As Christ opened his ministry in the gospel of Mark, he said what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And it's not that faith purifies in and of itself, as though it has some sort of intrinsic criteria that God just loves and, and desires, and that's why he purifies. But it's the empty hand of faith that grabs hold of Christ. Faith is the channel through which Christ's saving work comes to us. Faith is like the bleeding woman who had a hemorrhage for over 12 years, who said, if I touch even the hem of his garments, I'll be made well. It is faith that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. 
And to speak of purification presupposes and assumes the reality of sin's stain and the necessity of cleansing found only in the gospel. For when we speak of the gospel, we must first start with who God is. God is the creator. God is holy and righteous and good. God's eyes are too pure even to look upon sin. And after we understand who God is, we then understand who we are in light of who God is. For man was made in the image of God to reflect the glory and goodness of God into creation. And yet as we examine ourselves up against God and his standard, his law, which is the expression of what he is like, we agree with Paul and say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's, there's none righteous, not one. There's, there's none good. There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And because God is just and holy and righteous, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And yet God is gracious and merciful and compassionate, not wishing for any to perish, but that all might come to repentance. And so when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, the eternal Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And yet he entered into his own creation. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot did not and will not live. He actively obeyed God's law in our behalf. Not only did he actively obey God's law, but he also took upon himself the penalty that that law demands. Whereas Peter says in chapter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. The just died for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. And these great truths are not meant to be just thought about or even assented to, but they must be obeyed. They must be responded to. So the command of the gospel is that you turn from your sin, turn from living for yourself, and you turn to Christ. To turn to Christ assumes the turning away from sin. And as Paul says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Christ says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who hears these words of mine and believes him who sent me, die, shall have eternal life. And so for Peter, this salvation, this great gospel, is not an end in and of itself. Rather, it is a means to an end, with, with that end being brotherly love. Look with me again to verse 22, where Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That this love is to be sincere speaks of it being genuine. It's not pretentious. It literally means to be without play acting or putting on a show. And that is to be brotherly speaks to its familial aspect. For just as siblings have a natural affection and love for one another, so too do those as brothers and sisters in Christ have that same affection. 
Notice here also the importance of and the centrality of the local church. The concept of familial love presented by Peter then is in the context of a letter written to churches in the first century. So, beloved, although we've been saved solely by the grace of God, we've been saved for the purpose of good works. And a vital aspect of such works is brotherly love. For as Peter said in the opening remarks of 1 Peter in chapter 1, he said the purpose of our election is for obedience to Jesus Christ. And what is obedience? Obedience is conforming to of his disciple of his disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ got up and he said to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Therefore, because salvation's purpose is brotherly love, Peter can then exhort us, in the end of in verse 22, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That love is to be done earnestly means it is to be constant, continual. It's to be a persevering love. It's not something that happens by default or by accident, but it must be purposely pursued. And not only is it to be done earnestly, but it's to be done from a pure heart. This purity of heart demonstrates the importance not merely of the actions themselves, but even the motivations behind such actions. And this pure heart undoubtedly is in reference back to this purified soul that Peter mentioned at the beginning of verse 22. And it speaks of the location where uh, where such love is derived. For there are many unbelievers who, who do many good things for their communities as well as for those in need throughout the world. Some may even lay down their lives for someone else. And we ought to praise and celebrate such behavior and, and thank God for it. Yet it is only those who have been purified and transformed by the gospel who can selflessly love with both the right action as well as the right motivation, which is the glory of God. For as Paul says, that whatever is done not by faith is sin. So in summary, to summarize verse 22, it's as if Peter is saying, you were saved for the purpose of brotherly love, therefore do it. So may we heed such an exhortation this morning. May we preach the gospel to ourselves regularly, recognizing that we can only walk in a manner worthy of it when we first know it and believe it. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll see a very practical working out of, of what such love might look like in the context of the local church. In verse 8 to verse 11, Peter uses this same phrase again in, in verse 8. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as he again encourages them to earnestly love one another, he, he speaks of and he mentions that love covers a multitude of sins. It is a forgiving love. So may we heed such an exhortation. May we be those who confess our sins to those whom we have wronged. And may those who have been wronged forgive as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. He also speaks of being hospitable and to do so without grumbling. Again, he speaks not merely of the action, but also the very heart and the motivation behind such an action. So may we be hospitable. May we seek to cultivate a familial affection for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we be those who seek to serve one another by exercising the gifts that God has given to us. For as we do such things, we are fulfilling the purpose of our salvation, which is love. Well, now that we've looked at the first way that we can better love one another, let us consider the second way. The second way that we can better love one another is by holding fast to the eternal life-giving word. While listening to the unbelieving world squabble back and forth over how life began is both interesting and amusing. For if you cannot appeal to God as the originator of life, to what can you appeal? Well, such a dilemma has led to numerous theories, including the theory of spontaneous generation, which proposed that life can suddenly arise from non-living matter. The theory was considered a viable option up until the 19th century, when in 1864, an individual named Louis Pasteur demonstrated in his experiments that microbial life could not originate spontaneously without pre-existing life. Now, not too long after this discovery, there were individuals who were arguing that life's origin was not a result of spontaneous generation, but was a result of a long, gradual process of chemical evolution. That is, life could not come from non-life spontaneously, but life could perhaps come from non-life gradually. Well, just as debates about the origins of natural life have produced numerous theories, so have debates regarding the origins of spiritual life. Some have argued that spiritual life is produced through the waters of baptism. Others have argued that it comes after saving faith. And still others have argued that man's natural state is good and is unaffected by Adam's sin, thus seeing new life as absolutely irrelevant. Yet, we'll see in verses 23 through 25 that new life is indeed necessary and that it finds its origin in the eternal word of God. Well, having just exhorted his readers to love one another, the end of verse 22, Peter next seeks to ground his command in the reality of regeneration. Look with me to the end of 22 and into 23. Peter says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
since you have been born again. Now this talk of being born again has been previously mentioned by Peter in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new birth is also assumed in chapter 1, verse 14, as he refers to his readers as obedient children. So what is Peter speaking of when he speaks of being born again? Well, the theological term for this is regeneration. And perhaps no doctrine has been less emphasized or more misunderstood than the doctrine of regeneration. Our catechism here at the church defines regeneration as the work of the Holy Spirit by which he removes our dead heart and gives us a living heart, and thus we are born again. Therefore, regeneration is the sovereign act of God whereby he raises a person from spiritual death unto spiritual life. In regeneration, man is a passive recipient, while in conversion, he is an active participant. Regeneration is the cause, while faith and repentance are the effect. For just as you could not and did not physically birth yourself into this world, so you cannot and did not cause your spiritual birth. Regeneration is that which makes the spiritually blind see and the spiritually deaf hear. For apart from it, we cannot truly see the vileness of our own sin, nor can we see the beauty of Christ. Apart from regeneration, we cannot hear the sentence of divine judgment, nor can we hear the pronouncement of the gospel of peace. Commenting on regeneration, Charles Spurgeon said, In the first birth, we are born to sin. In the next, we are born to holiness. In the first birth, we are partakers of corruption. In the next birth, we are heirs of incorruption. In the first birth, we have depravity. In the second, we have perfection. What broader contrast could there be? What should make us more thoroughly long for this new birth than the glorious fact that we are by its means consciously lifted up from the ruins of the fall and made perfect in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it is because the transformational effect of regeneration is so dramatic that Peter commands his readers and us this morning to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. For although our hearts were once hard as stone towards God, and towards one another. They've now been softened like flesh, although they once detested the commands of God. They now delight in them. So what then has produced this new birth? Well, Peter says in verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of of God. Now, if you remember, I quoted chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter again speaks of the new birth. And he says that it was caused by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, which is it? Is it Christ's resurrection, or is it the Word of God that causes new birth? 
Well, simply put, it's both. As one commentator put it, the resurrection of Jesus was the grounds for the new birth. The word of God was the instrument of the new birth. The former was the basis for granting new life. The latter was the tool used by the Spirit to bring about new life. And as Peter speaks of this living and abiding word of God, he refers to it as that of a seed. And in so doing, I think it's clear that what he's, he's doing is alluding to the parable of the four soils. Now, Peter was a disciple of Jesus who followed him for three and a half years, and he listened to Christ's teaching and, and to many of his parables. And in his explanation of this parable, Jesus said in Luke 8, 11, the seed is the word of God. And yet, unlike the life produced by natural seed, the life produced by the supernatural word cannot perish. For God's word is imperishable in such a way that even the life it produces cannot fade, but is everlasting and eternal. And as he seeks to further prove the eternality of God's word, Peter quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. Look with me at verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now here the prophet Isaiah speaks of the glory of man as though it were like grass. It sprouts up in the morning, and by the afternoon it's been scorched and dies. Such glory corrodes, corrupts, and fades. For the world's greatest kingdoms have risen and have fallen. The world's most magnific magnificent minds have lived and have died. And yet, it is only the word of the Lord that remains forever. The word of the Lord is imperishable, it is impenetrable, and it is impeccable. As the Lord Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And it is this eternal word that Peter says at the end of verse 25, it is this word that is the good news that was preached to you. That is, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And it is this gospel that Peter says was proclaimed to you and accompanied by the Spirit of God caused new life. Now, if you would, turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. We'll be looking at chapter 37. There is perhaps no greater illustration or demonstration of this life-giving power of God's Word than here in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel says, 37 verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, 
There were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, There were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he, that is the Lord, said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." What a picture this is of new birth. For as Ezekiel looked out into the valley, he saw nothing but dead, dry bones. And what did the Lord tell him to do? He told him to proclaim what God has revealed, that is to prophesy, to speak forth what God has spoken And these bones were brought together, and he prophesied to the breath, and it was the breath that filled and brought them to life. Likewise, it was the gospel of God, accompanied by the Spirit of God, that raised you and me from death unto life. For as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins, But God in his mercy and in his great love for which he loved us made us alive. And so it is with this new life, this new nature, that comes a new ability and a new capacity to love. So my question for you is, have you experienced this new life? Have you been born again? Is your life characterized by commitment to and a love for God's people? For how can you love your church family if you are not committed to a church family? And if you have been born of God, praise Him, glorify Him, thank Him for His grace and mercy, knowing that apart from His effective word, you would still be dead in sin. So may we hold fast to this eternal life giving word. May we, having tasted the goodness of the Lord, be those who long for his word as newborn babies long for their mother's milk, so that by it we may grow into salvation. And may such a reality cause us to boldly proclaim the gospel to those whom God has providentially brought into our lives, knowing that it is his word and his spirit that will germinate that seed Well, in in closing, I'd like us to consider the life of the Apostle Paul. 
Perhaps there's no person outside of Christ who better demonstrates brotherly love as salvation's purpose and result. For it was Saul's, Saul of Tarsus's mission to persecute and to destroy the church of God. And yet all that changed when the Lord appeared to him on the Damascus Road, calling him to himself and appointing him as an apostle and as a herald of good news. And from that moment onward, Paul's mission had changed. No longer would he seek to destroy the body of Christ, but he would endure the destruction of his own body so that Christ's body might flourish. He endured imprisonments, shipwrecks, beatings, lashings, hunger, thirst, danger, and sleepless nights, all for the sake of his brethren. He poured out his life as a drink offering, presented his body as a living sacrifice, endured all things for the sake of God's elect. And it was Paul who said, If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So may we imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. May we love one another earnestly from a pure heart, for as we do so, we are fulfilling salvation's purpose and result. Close with me in prayer. Father, we do praise you for your word. We praise you, God, for your saving gospel. God, that has purified us and has cleansed us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us new desires and, and new abilities to love. Lord, may we heed such an exhortation. May we seek to love one another earnestly. May we be those who imitate Christ. God, we thank you for new life in Christ, knowing that apart from your great grace, we would still be lost, we would still be dead in trespasses and sins. We pray that you'd give us boldness to proclaim this life-giving word to those whom you've put in our lives. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.